0: Wonderful. So we've got Adrian and Antoinette with us this morning. Adrian leads uh, Cedars Church across the road. Um, We're so grateful for your willingness to come and serve us, and we are so willing to, uh, so just um, pleased, and and it's just so lovely to partner with Cedars in in bringing the gospel into Stellenbosch. So thank you so much. Um, Do you want to come up, Adrian, and we'll pray for you? But yeah, thanks for your just making yourself available and your sacrifice to come and serve us. Lord, we thank you for Adrian, we thank you for Antoinette, thank you Lord for bringing them to Stellenbosch, Um, thank you Lord for their hearts to serve you and to uh, spread your gospel in Stellenbosch and to disciple believers Lord, Um, we pray for great fruitfulness in their work Lord and we thank you for um, the word that he's going to bring us this morning Lord, we really ask that you would open our hearts Lord Um, Will your Holy Spirit, uh, I pray Lord that you would challenge us, uh, each one of us individually Lord, just put your finger on that which you want to highlight to each one of us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Well, hello, everyone.
1: It's really good to see you all. I'm just trying to find my notes. Because without that, I will struggle. (laughs) So um, we are very privileged to be in the same town as you. Um, Stellenbosch is an amazing place. I feel like uh, as an Englishman, God has always put me in Afrikaans context, um, I don't know why he does that, but, um, we've spent a lot of time in Pretoria. And, um, when we thought God's leading us to the Cape, it was like, Hey, maybe an English context would be uh, possible. you know, I'm thinking like southern suburbs and, and as God led us, we came here and I realized, no, I'm, I'm here for the Afrikaans people. So, um, I walked into a church once in Pretoria. We were trying to find a church and, um, there was two banners up on the stage on either side, like vertical ba- banners with the words written, kind of like letters below one another. And, and so I read it and I thought, guns and grenade. That's like the one is guns and, and then grenade. And it's like, I've heard of spiritual warfare, <laughs> but I've never ever thought of it like that. You know, like we're approaching this quite seriously. Then I... I looked at it again and I thought, gee, that's unfortunate because there's a spelling mistake. You know, they forgot the R. So I leaned into my wife's ear, who's Afrikaans, and I said, they spelled grenade wrong. She's like, no, that's Grenada and Gins. So, gins and Grenada was basically what they were trying to communicate for the day. Grace and favor. Is that right? Grace and favor? Yeah. Um, but here we are. So, <laughs> so we are, we're going to look at, mission this morning. Um, And uh, I want to speak about the mission of Jesus. And I want to speak about the fact that his hands, his divine hands, are on his mission. Uh, You know, sometimes we think about mission as if it's our mission. But we need to realize it's his mission. We, We, Like he dignifies us by allowing us to partner with him in his agenda and what he is wanting to uh, accomplish. And so it's his mission. And, and I want to use Paul's um, second missionary journey um, as uh, kind of our text for this morning. Um, so it's going to be from the book of Acts. And, and if we look at the book of Acts, um, some Bibles actually call the book the Acts of the Apostles. Um, some people have felt like they can um, improve on that to say, no, it's actually the acts of the Holy Spirit. I would like to look at it in a different way because I believe it's the acts of Jesus through his apostles by the power of the Holy Spirit. So everyone's involved there, but it's actually his acts. He has a completed work and then he ascends into heaven for his heavenly ministry, there's an ongoing work. His ongoing work is an appropriation of his completed work because his completed work is now being appropriated to hearts, and it's his mission. And so he um, uses people like Paul um, and Silas and a whole bunch of others to um, go on mission. And the beauty of the book of Acts is it's like these concentric circles you know, because he commissions them and he says, go into uh, Jerusalem, uh, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the age. And in, in Matthew, where he commissions them, he says, I will be with you till, till the ends of the age. I will be with you as you go out. And so there's this like continuation. It's not like Acts chapter 28 is where it ends we're in the chapter 29 of the book of Acts because God is still putting mission as his priority. Like he draws us to himself. And um, Paul writes elsewhere, like you've been reconciled to God, but you've been given a ministry of reconciliation. So the missional reality of Jesus should be playing out in how we live our lives. Like We, we should be missional. It shouldn't be something that we kind of grab a theme for a period of time and then then we let go of that and we go on to a different theme. Like the mission of Jesus should be arresting our hearts all the time because people don't know him and they are lost. And we get to proclaim this amazing news of the gospel of grace. And when people hear it, they come into a new life, an eternal life, and a reality where they can be in relationship with Jesus and they can have a heavenly father for all eternity. So it's huge. It's great that you guys are looking at mission in this week. I I think for us as a church as well, we've really felt like God is impressing on us the fact that we're not here to be a a gathering or a social club or like we're here for our sake. We're actually here for the sake of this town. We are for the sake of those who don't know him. And when you realize that and you live in that, then every day becomes an adventure. It should be an adventure. As opposed to let me just focus on myself and and hopefully, you know, everything in my life is turning out okay. And for that I'm gonna thank God and his blessings are kind of showing itself in how my circumstances are playing out. You know, that's not the Christian walk that God's called us to. He's called us to way more. There is a, a beautiful missional reality. So the setting is the Mediterranean Sea, the, the route of his second journey. Um, you can go to the next slide, it kind of shows you the route that he takes. And and this is spanning over chapter six, 16, 17, and 18. And we're going to be stopping in um, chapter 16, where uh, he makes his way to Macedonia. Um, and this is uh, quite a significant moment because the the seed of the gospel is being sowed in, in European soil for the first time. So Macedonia is like the place where he, he lands up, and the city of Philippi um, is going to be the emphasis. And this is where the letter to the Philippians comes from, because the church of the Philippians was established in this um, trip. So this is kind of the main theme for the morning. The mission of Jesus includes his guidance, his intervention, His providence, his reach, and his church formation. And in every aspect, in every step, his divine hand is covering over all of it. So there's a whole bunch of points that I'm going to try and get through. If I don't, um, we'll get through the ones that we have time for. Um, But divine guidance, divine intervention, divine deliverance, divine providence, divine reach Divine community. Common word there is divine. So it's his. It's his work, and we get to be a part of it. So we start out with divine guidance, and in verse um, 6 of chapter 16, it says, Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit. From preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Messiah, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. You see, when you think that this is Jesus' mission, you start to pick up on things like that because the spirit of Jesus didn't allow them. You know, like they had their thoughts, they had something in mind. Hey, we'll go to Asia Minor. Spirit of Jesus says no, you won't. Doesn't say where they must go, he just says no, not there. Um, And and so instead of going west, they go north because the spirit of Jesus didn't allow them to move west. And then when they're moving north, then Paul's like, hey, maybe Bithynia. And the spirit of Jesus says, no, not Bithynia. And so they go west again. You see how that route was, was developed by restriction. Not there, not there. It's an incredible thing. And so the divine guidance of Jesus translates to this uncharted journey, one of um, an absence of control. Who likes control? And for the rest of you, you're not being honest. So we all want to have control. Who goes on a journey without knowing the destination? Who goes on a journey where you know the destination, but you don't work out the route? I know some people who do that just as like an adventure sport, you know, like, let's see if we find our way there and then en route you're trying to find. But for the most part, we're quite calculated. Like we want to know where we're going. We want to know how we're going to get there. We want to make sure that there's enough fuel in the tank so that we can get there. All of these aspects of control is completely out of the picture with Paul's journey because there's divine guidance. And and I love the fact that um, he uh, allows Jesus to lead him um, and, and he, there's a willingness, uh, just a willingness to venture into the unknown. I mean, if you think of Hebrews 11... All of those characters, all the heroes of the faith, it all starts with, by faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, by faith. They get into this um, incredible chapter, which I think is a growing chapter, not necessarily written, but there's heroes of faith, and it's all by faith. It's all in response to God. It's all in the prompting. So God said this, and then they did. I mean it, it doesn't talk about the fruit of what they did. It talks about that they responded to what God asked them to do. So so basically what we need to get from that is the victory's in the going. You know, we, we think the victory is in the outcome of our efforts. The the fruit. You know, so like when we share the gospel with someone, are we focused on them coming to salvation? And and in such a way that we get a bit weird. Have you ever come across someone who's weird when they share the good news? Because it's like it's a project. You know, like we're trying to get the person to get to this point where we can lead them in the sinner's prayer. I mean, the sinner's prayer is a very recent thing. Paul didn't have the sinner's prayer. He didn't lead people in the sinner's prayer. There's nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer, but it's a recent thing. And And so, like, what are we going for? What is it that we are focused on? And and he's prompting is to move in a direction and not worry about the next thing, not worry about the destination, not worry about the outcome. And and the victory is always in the going. It's how God prompts us and how we respond to him. And in that, from a heavenly perspective, we, we see that God's economy and how he views things is our response to him. You know, sometimes we think, oh, but how are they going to respond when we preach the good news? It's not the point. Like, our, our responsibility is just to preach the good news. When we worry about the outcome, we miss out on what actually God wants us to do. And when we have his re, re, like prompting and we just respond to that, then he's got to, by faith, over us, by faith, you spoke the good news to that person that I prompted you to. By faith, you moved in a direction where my good news fell on the ears of someone that needed to hear it. And, and so this guidance of God, the guidance of Jesus, is a divine reality. And the whole disposition of this mission trip is one of faith, dependence, and obedience. There was a, um, a young man that I had an opportunity to help at one stage uh, who was um, struggling with drugs. He, he was a hairstylist, and myself and a couple of mates, we would go to him regularly. We developed a friendship with him, and then one day he communicated with us that he's going to head to Durban, he needs to go see family, um, and and we never heard from him again, but we had contact, and so through that contact and his lack of responding to us, and the little bits that he gave, we came to the conclusion that he's in trouble, and... Um, and, and so myself and a friend of mine, Heinz, we chatted to a guy who, who headed up a drug rehab center. And um, Casey was like, based on what you're telling me and what he's communicating, this man is in trouble. So we were like, okay, well, what do we do? We pray about it. I felt like God said, just go fetch my boy. He wasn't saved at the time, but God had his heart set on this young man. And so we get into the car, Casey, Heinz, and I, and we drive to Durban. You're asking where specifically? We didn't know. Because all we had was Durban. And that's from Pretoria. So, you know when you get into a car and you don't actually know where you're going? It's pretty much what was happening here... I only realized afterwards, like when I went through this passage, actually that was something of God's divine guidance because here we're driving and, and, and we're stalking people on Facebook and I'm on the phone to Antoinette and she's speaking to the ex-girlfriend and, and, and we get to a point where we could either go um, north or we can go south or we can go into the city center. So there we are in the car and we're praying and, and we feel like God say, not in the city center. We're not going into Durban. Okay, so which is it, north or is it south? South. Okay, let's go south. And so we went south and then another clue came through. We landed up in South Broome because his mother worked in a caravan park in South Broome, And, and then I, I see a guy that looked just like him. It was quite a weird moment because I, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. no, that's not him. But it was his brother. And so I ended up speaking to his brother and his brother's like, who are these guys? You know, like undercover cops or something. He was probably also in drugs. And, and so I convinced him to phone Leslie and say, your friend Adrian is here. So he does. And uh, Leslie comes back with, I don't know an Adrian. So he says he doesn't know Adrian. So I said, tell him from Pretoria. And by virtue of the reaction on his face, I realized that the, something struck a chord, and he said he's on his way. And then uh, Leslie came walking down this like, driveway area to where we were standing and he looked like death warmed up and at that point in time that was the day that he had decided he would take an od like just he would end it he's he's gonna and he was so deeply caught in drugs that he, he the only way he could end it was to take his life and here we are in South Broome of all places, in a caravan park of all places. And 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 he responds to us in a way that's like, whatever you say. So we get him into the car, quite a journey home, because he's got withdrawal symptoms the whole way there. There was like the next day. But you see, like when you say yes to God, you don't know the details. You don't know, like, who's going to pay for us to get there? Where are we going to sleep when we get there? Where are we going? But like, would you just respond to God? Is there a prompting where God's saying, this is what I want you to do? And irrespective of the, the absence of control, we can go. Because when you do, God fills in all the details. He went into a drug rehab center for nine months. God paid for everything. I just opened up an account and God just let money just flow in there and we just could pay for the entire rehab of this young man. And he came to salvation as well. But the question is, how do we respond to God? How do we hear what he's asking of us and where he puts us into contexts like this where we get to respond, where we don't know the outcome of things? And, And this is not, you know, when we think mission, we think mission journey. We think we're getting in a car and we're crossing borders. Can I just say, this is every day. Every day we are crossing borders. Every day we are walking into context, whether it be your place of work or um, a service that you provide where people are coming to you. God is, he wants to use us to reach people for his love and kingdom and glory and for their eternal security. So it's not like, hey, let's get a combi. I mean, those things are good. We can do that. But it's every day we get to walk into the space of unknown uncharted and just whatever the the, the promptings of God are we get to respond to him so divine guidance you know this thing of restriction it's amazing how God works because sometimes he says go in that direction other times he says don't go in that direction and then it's like, well, then what? But the restriction of God is important in our lives. You know, we don't like to be contained. We don't, be, we don't like to be confined. But sometimes that restriction is important. When I first arrived in Stellenbosch, I was quite set on, hey, like, we're going to find a venue. So um, I had a chat with a couple of people, uh, including Paul, and they were like, okay, but there are no venues. Like... You're new to Stellenbosch. We're going to help you understand the setting here. Um, it's not like you just amble in and you find your place. Like it's God's got to open doors here. So I'm like, okay, that's cool, but I'm still checking options out. And I drive past the grappa shed on the R304, and, and this is in the early days, like when we first got here and we planted. And, and I drive in there, and there's a number on the board, and I'm like, geez, I wonder what this is about. I take the number down. I drive away, I start asking some questions, I realize there's a church that meets there like once every six to eight weeks, and I'm like, geez, this place can be used for better purposes. You know, maybe if, if I make contact with this person, um, we can be like a weekly rental in that space, and you know what, I just couldn't make the call. I had the number on my phone, and every time I thought to phone, I felt constrained, like I can't make this call, and eventually I just let it go. And that's the exact property that we now, as a church, have been given an opportunity to lay hold of because it's been developed. The entire farm is being developed, and we're the church that has been given the opportunity to lay claim to it. It's a piece of land, two hectares that includes the grapple shed and a whole bunch of other. But now you need to understand the story behind how we became the church that can lay claim to it. It's God orchestrated. And if I had made the call then, we would not have been the church today. You see how God actually, he restrains us because it's for our own good. He restrains us for his purpose. And if I had gone the route that I'd gone, it would never have worked out the way it worked out now. Now, I'm not the one making the call about a venue. The developers are phoning me and asking, are you interested? So, like, I didn't even make it happen. God made it happen. So when we allow his restriction on our lives, because he's he's guiding us in a very divine way, he's the one that works his purposes in our lives and opens doors and opens windows when it needs to be opened and for the timing that he has in mind. So, divine intervention. They land up going to um, Troas. Paul has a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, come and help us. Um, They land up in Philippi. And Paul's um, habit was to go to the synagogue. And then he would start there. He would speak to the people in the synagogue. And um, when he arrives there, there's no synagogue. And the reason why there was no synagogue is because there wasn't enough men to constitute a synagogue. How bad is that? So you need 10 Jewish men before you can build a synagogue. And so there wasn't enough Jewish men. And so a whole bunch of ladies would get together and pray and worship together outside the city. So he went outside the city. He's like, oh, I'll go speak to them. He goes down to the river and he speaks to a bunch of women. Um, It says this. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. How amazing is that, that someone would go from being um, outside of town from Thyatira. So she's from the east. She's a businesswoman. She lands up in Philippi. So he brings his elect to Philippi. And then he brings his messenger, Paul, to Philippi. And in that space, Paul proclaims the message and Jesus does the opening of her heart. So the saving initiative is actually Jesus. Paul just brings the message. Paul does nothing As far as her heart's concerned, Jesus is the one who opens her heart. And it happens in this incredible way where when her heart gets opened, her hands get opened. And so she's the one that opens her house and says, you can come and meet, yeah. And so the Philippian church was in her house, in her home. So Jesus opens her heart and she opens her hands and she opens her home. And this place of faith is established. And I thought, man, that is so amazing that you would have someone from out of town and then the messengers also from out of town and God would put them together in a way where he would share the good news and then Jesus would open her heart and as a result, her hands would be opened as well. And you can't think about these things as just being like these are Bible stories. This happens all the time. So the Philippian church had Lydia. In our church, we've got Julia. Julia. And Julia is from the Ukraine. And so she comes from the Ukraine to South Africa eight years ago. Last year, she's searching, she's struggling with depression and a whole bunch of things. And another person, also from the Ukraine, these two ladies that meet here in South Africa, Alexa's in in Cedars, and Julia is unsaved, and Alexa meets her, shares the gospel with her, and then Jesus opens up her heart. Her heart gets opened she joins us. She gets baptized, lost year October, and now her hands are being opened because she's the one that's coming forward to say, hey, I'm an architect. She's a brilliant architect. She's saying, I'll handle all the architectural plans, all the design elements for our new building. You see, like when your heart is opened by Jesus, your hands are opened as well. So this divine intervention, that's why we don't have to do more than share the message. The power of the gospel is in Jesus reaching a person's heart. And when their hearts are opened, their hands open as well. So divine intervention. Then divine deliverance. There's a slave girl that comes into the picture. And she's being a little bit of a nuisance because she is um, demon-possessed. And she's shouting about Paul and Silas, that these are men from God, and they are sharing the, the message for salvation. And, and they kind of like, man, this is not helping our cause, because people know that she's demon-possessed. And her um, supernatural gift that she had was to tell the future, and the, the future that she could tell um, translated to her owners earning money. And so she wasn't wealthy. She was incredibly poor. She was a slave girl. And her supernatural gift of um, this being possessed by a demon translated to predicting the future, and her owners were, were getting wealthy as a result. But she's following them. And and she's saying, hey, everyone, listen to them. And Paul's worried about the credibility of their message. Because he's like, man, everyone knows who this girl is. And, and if she's the one that's tagging along and saying, hey, everyone, listen to them, then it's probably not going to do us any good. So it says this in verse 18. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the spirit left her. I love how Paul, with his incredible gift and his um, ability to be an apostle and to speak with such wisdom... And to speak the truth of God, he never, ever got to a point where he thought, this is me. He could boast in no one other than Jesus on the cross. And so when it comes to this moment, it's not like, oh, here's a moment for me to apply some of my ministry experience. He commands the Spirit, but he says, in the name of Jesus. In other words, in the power and in the authority of Jesus. Not my authority, not my power. And, and so mission is about understanding that there's an authority and a power at work that's not ours, but it's delegated to us. I mean, Jesus said, all authority has been given unto me, therefore go. So it's in his authority that we go. And, you know, p- people are held captive. If I don't ask you by show of hands, so you don't have to show me, but if I had to, um, do you know of anyone who is addicted to something, whether it be alcohol or drugs or social media or spending, a little bit of retail therapy or materialism, you know, affluence, approval, like being captive, we would have our hands up very quickly. In fact, we probably have two hands up. And then it's just like friends and family that we know. And if we were very honest, we might be putting our hands up for ourselves. Social media. No. So are we captive? Or are, we, are we held? Are we being oppressed by something that's not from God? Is it, is it capping us? Is it putting... And you know what? We have a power that is not ours, but is to our disposal. There is there's a reality that when Jesus steps in... He breaks things. We've really got to think differently about things that we, we struggle with and not, not think like um, this is, this is a, a condition that needs to be managed. Don't think of it like that. Think of it as something that needs to be broken off in the power of Jesus. And, and, and can we go into an environment where we know other people are held captive, but in the power of Jesus, they will find release. So divine providence kicks in when Paul and Silas are um, approached um, by the Jews and they're not happy with their message. So they seize Paul and Silas. They drag them into the marketplace and, um, or oh, actually, sorry, it's the owners of the slave girl that was unhappy with them. So. Because of the demon being um, cast out of the slave goal, the ability to earn money, the owners of the slave goal lose their source of income. So they're the ones that pull Paul and Silas to the marketplace and say, we need to take these guys out. And um, it says in verse 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. You know, we read that, and if you do what, what I try and do when I read Scripture, and I put myself in the shoes of the people that's involved, just to try and like understand what's actually happening here, how, how must it have been for them? I think I would be saying, what the heck, here I am doing the work of the Lord. How is it that I'm being stripped and severely flogged? What's up with that? See we need a theology for this. If you don't have a theology for this, you're in trouble. In Acts 18, this is what I was thinking of when I said the Jews came against him. In Acts 18, Paul is being attacked by the Jews because of their message, and they bring them to the proconsul, a guy by the name of Galileo. And he has a leaning that when they come with their story, he sees it as being trivial. He's like, oh, hold on a second. This, what you're talking about is just words and names, and like there's no serious crime here. Be off. Like, just get away from me. I don't want to hear your story. And, and the, the Jews are so charged to beat someone, and, and the object of that was going to be Paul. But when the proconsul says, I don't want to hear your story, move away from you, they take the, the guy that looked after the synagogue and they beat him. Just because they needed to, like, release their charged beating that they had pent up towards Paul. Now, we read that, and we think, hmm, divine providence. You know, that Paul and Silas would find themselves in this situation, and then that this proconsul would have this leaning. Like, he would, he would be leaning in a direction that he wouldn't want to hear the story of the Jews, and, and by God's providence... They walk away without any form of harm. Now, that does mean that God's providence was at play. But if you can only apply God's providence to Acts chapter 18, but you can't apply God's providence to Acts chapter 16, then your understanding of God's providence is not biblical. Because then your understanding of God's providence is um, kind of equated to Christian luck. You know, just because we children of God, things worked out for us. Our circumstances, um, everything fell into place. You know, we were protected from harm. uh, We were protected from uh, all the bad things. And and so because of that, God's providence is at play in our lives. Now, I want to say God's providence was at play in Paul and Silas being beaten and severely flogged. Now, that is a hard thing to grab hold of, but we need to grab hold of it as a position of faith. So it's not something that you try and understand. It's not something that you try and pick apart. It's something that you just realize God is at work and he is good and he is faithful. And sometimes things happen that is not necessarily in our favor and our circumstances are not really working out that great, but he's at work. And the thing that Paul and Silas knew was that that was true about who God is. And so they could see that irrespective of what's happening, God is at work. Jesus is on mission. He's commissioned us. He's not having like a lapse of concentration. And I was like, this is happening. And he's like, oh, my bad. Sorry, I was just catching up with a few things. Like, I didn't see what was happening. You know, so let me now come into the picture and let me try and turn things around. No, he was divinely present. His divine providence was over everything. Why? Because he had his eyes on a Philippian jailer. One of his elect was in the prison. And so things needed to happen in Paul and Silas's life that would bring them to a place. So his divine providence is over Lydia coming to conversion, the slave girl coming to conversion, but through her deliverance, they find themselves being charged. But it was all for the sake of being in prison where they would meet a Philippian jailer. And so God's providence is over that as well. At no point in time did God lose control. He was fully in control over everything. And we need to realize that as well. You know, sometimes things happen in our lives and we just switch off. It's like, you know, when everything comes back into play, then when when conditions are favorable, I'll be on mission again. No, you'll be missing something of what God is busy doing that we can embrace the things that happen in our lives in such a way that we know that he is fully in control and he is leading us in ways where people who don't know him will come to know him. So they with lacerated backs, aching limbs because they were put in stocks. I mean, people were put in stocks just as a means of torture. This was after they were beaten and whipped. But they break out in praise and worship. <laughs> so that they're full of prayer. They're full of worship. I will, I'm not so sure I would be doing that as my first response. I would probably be asking God a couple of questions. But, I mean, this text confronts that. It really, it, it, like, it confronts me. Because, you know, there's an amazing... Um, song called Highlands, and one of the lines in the song is this, I will praise you on the mountain, and I'll praise you when the mountain is in my way. That's a different kind of praise. So it says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. You see what happens when you praise God in the times where the mountain's in your way? You know, It's kind of like Jesus just reached into the dark corners of that jail and grabbed hold of it, and it began to shake. This earthquake, and I mean so violently that doors are just flinging open, and the locks around their limbs are just breaking open. I mean, it's beautiful. It's miraculous. But, but it's as, as, as a response to Paul and Silas worshiping God in the state that they were in. And I'm massively challenged by that. So the jailer wakes up. The Philippian jailer is like, what's going on? Paul says, don't harm yourself. We are all here. How's that? They're free to go. But they're all still there. Not just Paul and Silas. All of them, they were constrained by the presence of God. Then it says in verse 29, The jailer called for lights, him and the rest of South Africa, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. You and your household. You see, when the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, worship the wonder of God, the conviction of God, falls on the elect of God. And that's exactly what happened with this Philippian jailer. And we must understand, he was unreachable. i put that in written covers. We all know people like that, Right? They will never get saved. A little bit of self-righteousness in there, but um, that aside, you know what I'm talking about. Like the roughest of rough, the bad to the bone kind of people. He was one of them. Like we can't see him as the Philippian jailer who became part of the church when we're reading this part. I mean, he did become part of the church and God changed his heart. And he became a child of God. But at this point in time, he's not like cute Uncle Dave, you know, that stands there in the corner while we're prying. His name's probably Brutus or something. He was, he was rough. He was the one that would oversee all, all executions, all floggings. I mean, he was guilty of atrocities, violations towards the, the very image of God. He was bad. Unreachable. And just like Jesus would reach into the dark corners of that jail, he reached into the dark recesses of this man's heart. That he would ask the question before he's even heard the gospel, what must I do to be saved? Because Jesus has a divine reach that we don't. And he can reach into the hearts of anyone. And so he had set his love on this Philippian jailer from eternity past, and he would orchestrate things in such a way that Paul and Silas would be able to give him the message of salvation, which is through faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus. And we see incredible repentance from him as well, because like the day before, he's inflicting wounds, now he's washing wounds. There's incredible change. This Philippian jailer is a new man. He's, he's washing their wounds. He's um, putting a celebratory feast together. He's saying, come to my house, sit around the table. Let's eat. He's filled with joy because he's, he's been saved. And I'm going to end with this divine community. It says in verse 40, after Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. You could not find a more disparate group than the businesswoman, the slave girl, and the Philippian jailer. They were so different on so many levels. Racially, one was Asian, one was Greek, one was Roman. Socially, one was affluent, one was poor, and one was middle class. Spiritually, one was religious, one was demon-possessed, And the other one was agnostic. (laughs) Yet all three are radically saved by the one and same gospel. You know, Jewish men would pray daily in that time. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile. Thank you that I'm not a woman. And thank you that I'm not a slave. That's quite a thing to pray. But they prayed it daily. And Jesus says of these same three categories, you are my beloved. And he would take a woman, a slave girl, and a Gentile jailer, and say, this is how I'll build my church. And the Philippian church is established. Because he's the one that can form a divine community of incredible diversity. But he's the one that brings people together. We find our unity in him. We, we find our togetherness in what he's done. We find our worth in who he is. And that we find our righteousness and our togetherness in this one and true and only gospel. Paul later writes to the Philippians this amazing um, Passage, he says, I thank my God every time I remember you, Lydia, every time I remember you, Freegal, every time I remember you, Philippian Jailer. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. From the first day until now, been confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion, until the day of Christ Jesus. See, when you read that now, you realize that's the that's the church that we're talking about. That's who he's writing to. Jesus, uh, Paul had an understanding of Jesus' divine hands on his mission. Paul knew that it was only through the divine hands of Jesus that he would be able to write this letter encouraging them and, and writing it with such joy, this partnership that's now forming with people who were unreachable, captive, d- discarded, because they're women, because they're a slave, because they were Gentile. Jesus brings all of them together. So the mission of Jesus includes his divine guidance, his divine intervention, his divine deliverance, His divine providence, his divine reach, and his divine community. And every aspect and every step has his hands on it. And this is the beautiful reality that we get to be a part of. Can we be on mission? Can we have our hearts stirred for the sake of the lost and for the sake of others who don't know him? It will turn your life around and put you on an adventure on a daily basis because we get to see these beautiful divine realities playing out in and through our lives and others' lives coming to salvation. Amen. So we're going to take communion. Um, You know, the fact that we get to take communion where we, we all come around the same table. It's such a beautiful um, evidence of God's grace in that there are elements that unifies us. And so whether you're a woman, a slave girl, or a Gentile, it, it actually doesn't matter. It doesn't matter where your background kind of has you from. It doesn't matter um, what personality you have. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter, like, any form of diversity, any form where the world would actually look at us differently and look at one another differently. When we come around this table, it's because of one gospel and one Savior who forms one divine community, one family. So I think we should partake of this in a way that we, we just become conscious of the fact that we, we have the incredible privilege to be at the table. You know, that we actually get to partake in this because it's only by the work of Jesus that we would be able to be a part of the salvation story. And to know that it's not just all of us around the table. He's with us at the table. You know, when he had um, communion with his disciples, there was something different about that table because there was bread and there was wine. But there was an element that was missing. True for all Passover meals. And that was lamb there wasn't a lamb on the table and the reason why there wasn't a lamb on the table was because the lamb was at the table and so the lamb of god it takes away the sin of the world says won't you come and sit around my table won't you come and be a part of my family and if you don't know jesus this morning i want to encourage you To open your heart to the truth of this gospel. And if you're asking the question, well, what must I do to be saved? It's the same question that the Philippian jailer asked. The answer is just believe in the Lord Jesus. There's nothing else that we can bring. Your contribution to your salvation is your sin. That's the only thing. Like... I'm a sinner, and I'm in need of rescue. But when you put your faith in Jesus and his work, you come into his family, irrespective of where you come from, irrespective of your background, your education, your upbringing, because he's the one that forms a divine community. And so if if you want to do that, I want to pray for you. So why don't we stand together? And I want to just give opportunity for that. Before we come around the table, and I'm, I'm just going to pray a prayer that if you're wanting to put your faith in Jesus, that you can just pray with me in your heart. You can just be in agreement as I pray. So Father, this morning we, we want to thank you for the message of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that you sent your Son to live the life that we could never live and to die the death that we should die. We want to thank you that you have made it possible for us to have our sins taken from us because it was put on him and the judgment for our sins he bore And so, because of that truth, this morning we look to you as our Savior. We believe you, Lord Jesus, as the Savior of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We put our faith in you. We turn from our our lives of sin and our lives of trying to gain your favor through our own efforts we turn from that we repent of our old lives and we turn to you and in faith we call you lord and savior we look to you lord jesus for salvation you and you alone not anything that we do but your completed work on the cross And so we thank you that we can experience a relationship with you that is established by your grace and is true for all eternity. That when we die, we will not die, we will be with you forever. And for that, we want to say thank you. Thank you for the cross, thank you for your body that was broken. Thank you for your blood that was shed. And we want to come around your table this morning and partake of those elements as a beautiful reminder of the reality of what we have in you. You are our rescuer. You are our divine savior. And for that, we thank you and we worship you. I wonder if we could make our way to there's tables on either side in the front here and there's one at the back so you can kind of like just whatever one's closest to you let's make our way and just be around the table and we can be around the table as a family and let's take these emblems together and if you want to spend time praying together or if you want to just be on your own that's all good but let's do it as a family around his table.